The word that came to Jeremiah from Jesus, saying, Stand in the gate of the temple and proclaim the word and say, Hear the word of Jesus, all you who enter to worship Jesus. Thus says Jesus, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings. And I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust these lying words. We're the church. We're the church. We're the church. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered from all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says Jesus. Jeremiah 7. So when Jesus quotes that <laughs> you know, at, at the triumphal entry as he's cleaning the temple, it's not like a little tiny kind of throwaway thought. He is, he is viciously angry. And he's angry at very specific things. A lack of justice, particularly, right? Justice is a word that I think is, is easy to understand and yet it's kind of hard to understand too. A nice parallel to the word justice is accuracy. Accuracy. Why do you like golf or basketball? Because you like justice, actually. Really. You like to watch justice. Now, why is it that a skateboarder or a surfer slides down the wave and goes, righteous? Well, they mean you know, that was what it was supposed to be. <laughs> that was good. And, and justice is good. Good's a bigger word. What if we don't know what justice is? What if we don't know what accuracy means? Well, it would be what you do with those you see that matters most, your neighbor. Don't think just of the person who lives next to you 
but who you see. And then how do you treat the stranger? Do you even know if people are fatherless? What about the widow? And then, of course, the innocent blood, right? Walking after other gods to your hurt, that's an interesting thing. As you know, the idols, the biggest problem with idols is they just mess your life up. <laughs> you know, uh, you put your trust in things that can't save you, and then they don't, and then it's, it's, it's rough, right? It's the kind of way it is. He says, those are the things that get in the way of my love for you, right? Uh, what I would have you be. But then he really tips us off when he calls it a den of thieves then at the end. When he points out that the, the real issue that leads any man, family, congregation, town, country, planet to evil, the real issue is you decide it's about money. It's about what I can get. It's about what I can think I have so that others can't. And that idolatry is always in human history, always by the worship of some form of image. Um, where's my Bible? Oh, it's right there. Look, I carry, I carry American idols with me. There's a, there's a Jackson. They're mocking you when they put him on the 20. Um, uh, here's my Lincoln, right? Right? But, you know, in the ancient world, these would be called like household gods, except they're not household gods. They're Caesar's gods, right? Caesar put his face on it, right? Whatever, go to the store, take the idols and buy your groceries. The issue is, look how much mankind puts their trust in this. Watch what happens to people who believe these faces can fix their lives. It doesn't go well for anyone. Right? That's the den of thieves problem of mankind. And now what, um, what Jesus has on the other side of the den of thieves, what is supposed to be who we are as a people in creation to, in the first place, but then especially in Judaism, who he's coming to talk to on the triumphal entry. But now we, as the Christian church, who we are is not a den of thieves. We're not a den of thieves. We're a, we're a house of prayer. And that's where we're going to lead on our journey through the text again this morning. We'll look at some other texts, but we're going to lead to the house of prayer. And I want to close with the house of prayer, right? Because I don't think that Jesus would visit St. Paul Lutheran Church and tell you all, you're unbelievers, go away. I don't, just don't think he's going to do that. I think he's actually mad at the people in the world who would hide from you the fact that he wants you to be free to pray to him and to believe that he is the God who will answer, that he will send a solution to you. That is who he has been from the beginning until now. And just because he died on the cross didn't mean it stopped. It meant now it's free for everyone, not just the Jews. Now the kingdom's everywhere, not just in Jerusalem, even though the whole world's still going to fight over it. They're going to fight over it. Uh, who's really in charge? All right, so to, to shove in this direction now, we're going to look at that Romans text, which is in the bulletin for you. If you want to look at it verse by verse, you can also turn in your Bible. Uh, uh, your pew Bible will be the ESV. The bulletin will be the New King James, and I'm going to work from the New King James here in front of you. And this is a text that kind of says, okay, so we're, we're not the people Jesus is mad at, right? We're the people Jesus loves. How do we know this? Well, we're baptized into his name. We believe he's risen from the dead. We're not trying to stop that message by any means, right? People who don't like Jesus, people who are his enemies, try to stop the message. 
So, so we can know we're not that. We might be weak. We might know our own idols get us better than we ought. We might know that every single day I put a little more trust in this world than I really want to, and I feel the burn afterwards. But none of that makes me wicked. That just makes me a Christian because <laughs> I turn it to Jesus. It's his, right? He's got to fix me. Huh? Uh, but the wicked, uh, they're outside, and they don't want Christ. They want his word silenced. What they really don't want is grace, which is a strange thing when you get down to that. So we're the ones who have believed in grace. We're the ones who have been given love by God. It's free for everyone, but not everyone wants it. We do. And here we are. And so these words are to, are to build us here. These are not words to tear you down. These are not words to make you think, I can't do this. These are words to make you think Christianity is great. So here we go. It starts at verse 8, which is right after the section on government, uh, but it's more just about everybody here, right? Uh, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Now, that's a beautiful statement right there. Uh, You could be a kind of a fool, cut off the front end. Owe no one anything. That means don't take out a car loan. Nope, wrong way, buddy. Don't turn back. It's not about that. However, bankruptcy as a plan is definitely about how that's a bad plan. Like you can do it. Do you know this? You can take out lots of loans, start a company, fail miserably, walk away scot-free over and over again if you have friends who know how to work the system, teach you which laws to use and that kind of thing, right? That's not good. That's bad. That's wicked, really, right? Uh, Oh, no one anything means understand the value of what you have, understand the value of what everyone else has, and what you have, use for good. Uh, but don't be in a position where you're trying to get more and more and more, and so you aren't even owned by yourself. Uh, this would be like kind of the don't sell yourself into slavery thing. And, and you might think that's, uh, that's not possible these days. Um, I have a mortgage. I consider myself an indentured servant. I think about what it was like for those who crossed the sea in order to land here and work off their time crossing the boat on a farm so they could go and go further west, get some land, have their own farm. I think of myself that way with regard to my land. I am an indentured servant. I don't consider that selling myself into servitude, but I do say, you know, think about it before you do it. <laughs> you know, it's not a game. It is kind of a casino. Got to be careful with these kinds of decisions. Debt, right? Who do you owe what to? Credit card debt in America is out of control. You've heard this for decades now, right? And you know our national budget debt, and we don't even have like the capacity to think of what it would mean to pay that back. I'm not claiming to have solutions. I'm saying that you as a Christian, your duty today isn't to fix the American budget. Your duty is to not owe anybody else anything except that you desire to love everybody you meet. And then you handle your business, right? If you got to take out a loan for a car, take it. But, but the, the point is, don't live borrowing to get. Live to give good. It's beautiful even, right? So he goes on, he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And and the Lutheran's got to be like, well, you can't do that. Paul's wrong. Can't fulfill the law. We know the second use of the law teaches us that, right? Well, okay. There's a place where that's right. And if you don't know who I'm talking to, I am talking to the internet too. 
the LCMS needs to think about some things, and they do listen to me, some of them. And so these law gospel issues or these, these Lutheran issues, I'm trying to teach others as well about what we are here at St. Paul and, and how the Spirit is working here and how that's so obvious to all of us. And some of it is the language that we use and recognizing that biblical language should not be made to go away by misunderstandings that heretics had a long time ago. And so here, this language, which he very clearly says, you know, one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He's not saying, but not really. You really didn't fulfill the law. You kind of did, but you're sinners. So you're going to hell anyway. Like, we're saved already now, right? Jesus is inside of us now, right? If I fulfill the law today, is it so I can look back and measure how perfectly I fulfilled it to see how big my crown can be in heaven? I mean, that sounds stupid to me. That sounds boring, in fact. The reason I would want to fulfill the law today is because I would see somebody else benefit. That's why. And all he's saying then is if you're worried about being a good person, stop trying to find a bunch of bullet point lists and rules and do this isn't you know, diet plans, time management systems, right? All the idols of the world. And see if you can't just look at one person you would normally walk by and ask, I wonder how they're doing, really. You don't even have to talk to them. Just start thinking that way. That is what we as humans are made to be. That's what the law is, what we're made to be. And we can live in this love now, even though it's imperfect, no question. We are imperfect. But he goes on to the commandments. So you want to talk about commandments, how to make your life better, right? Don't commit adultery. He lists that one first. Try telling that to the American populace. You want to have a better life now? Don't commit adultery. <laughs> Maybe scoffed off the stage. Uh, but there it is, straight and plain. That's what it means to love. Wait, I thought they were allowed to have sex because they love each other. Ah, see, we don't know what love is. Love does no harm. But it felt real good last night. Yeah, last night. Try 20 years from now. See what it looks like. It's always the same story. The movies don't tell you how it really ends. Uh, so you shall not commit adultery. It's a form of love. To marry someone to commit yourself to that person until you die, even though they may get ugly or even like gross. You might have to like clean them and things before they die. That's marriage. That's marriage. You should not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Which I think this is the one that Lutherans should worry about least, except for the fact that Lutherans in general talk to each other with vinegar in their breath a lot. Now, St. Paul, we're, we're not quite there. We're, we're in a real nice spot. But again, um, I've been in enough politics in the Missouri City. You know, there's, there's a lot of vinegar in our breath. So the issue is here, what is spite? What is hate, right? Um, how do we love again? You shall not steal. Should be pretty straightforward. It's harder and harder these days to know. You don't own anything, it seems. <laughs> uh, you shall not bear false witness. You know, it means don't lie which doesn't mean put the best construction on somebody's evil, by the way, right? When the guy does evil in front of all of us and someone's like, that's evil. You're like, well, he didn't mean it. <laughs> that's lying. doesn't matter if he meant it or not. Did he kill the person? Then they're dead and we got to deal with this, right? So, so don't twist what you know is for the sake of some idea about what should be. That's what lying is, right? Don't do that. 
Um, you shall not covet, he lists here at the end. We're going to get back to that word covet in a moment, so we're going to go on. Um, is there any, uh, if there's any other commandment, this is kind of the point. He, he lists out like the ones you would know as, as a Hebrew or as a good Lutheran or maybe a Reformed or Catholic, you would know the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, Baptist, probably. You, know? you would know the Ten Commandments. So he lists those out, but he doesn't get all the way. And he says, he doesn't get to the end. He says, if there's any other commandment. So you pick, you go back to the Old Testament, you find your strangest little corner that you can find. And you say, see, it says we're supposed to like do this thing, right? And Paul says, it's all summed up in love your neighbor. So if you think, you know, wearing the tassels different on the edge of your clothing today in modern America, Lutherans will make you love your neighbor better than go pick that Bible verse and make your life about it. But, but his point is, you don't have to do that. You don't need to ponder Leviticus and Proverbs to find out what love is. You can find wisdom there. But love is much simpler. Love is not hard. Love is not a feeling. Love is an act and a choice. It does take discipline. It does take effort. Because love, by definition, is to do good to someone who isn't really going to give you anything back. They might even give you something bad back, right? You have a baby. They're in a crib. They scream. Do you scream at them? Right? That will go poorly. Uh, so love acts differently and toward what is not deserved. The baby doesn't deserve to be loved. I mean, they're your baby, but like they haven't earned it by some sort of effort or anything like that, right? You just do it because you know by loving them, what are they going to do? They're going to learn to not scream. They're going to learn to talk instead. Over time, it takes time, right? But love, again, it's a beautiful thing. I haven't talked about it enough in my ministry. I'll just repent right now. Um, if there's any other commandment, they're summed up. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, we fulfill the law. We've already fulfilled the law in Christ. It's imputed to us totally. His righteousness is our righteousness. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. And here we get to walk day by day, fulfilling it anyway. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's not meant to be like, whoa, worry about it. No, it's meant to be like, oh, wow. I Tell yourself this. In Jesus, loving God, seeking him, I can't fall away. I can only learn to be a more lovable person. How? By loving other people. What a thing. Yeah. And again, a free gift because you know you're never going to die. Or when you do die, you just rest. And God wakes you up to this being made complete and more with the body to match. Yeah. How good is that? And he's going to get into that here, right? Verse 11, and do this knowing the time. Right? That you're only in a tent right now. Your body right now, it's a tent. In the resurrection, a building. The distinction is, is vivid. Right? It's vivid. Yeah? Knowing the time. And that now is high time to wake out of sleep. By that, he means don't walk and live like everybody else on the planet does. In America, you used to be able to kind of do that because we had a lot of Christians around. And so everyone kind of was living Christian. But it's just not true now. You now must walk and live like your own or you will be drawn and pulled and pushed into being them. So he says, wake up, right? It's high time, wake up. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And you can take that in a number of ways. Of course, Jesus is closer to coming back. Of course, your death in this life is closer than it was, yeah? 
But I think what he really wants to drive with that poetic statement there, the nearer now than when we first believed, is that all the time is the time to remember. Every day is the day to believe again. There's never a moment to say, I got it, I'm okay now. Golly, I'll quote one that was said to me once. First congregation, I feel like, might have been second. He said, I invited a guy to Bible study, you know, weekly attender. I did all that years ago, he said to me. I have a lot of thoughts about that comment, um, but uh, I'll just leave it with, this is why I preach 30 to 45 minutes in St. Paul and we don't have a Bible study. I won't take that. You did nothing years ago. It's today. It's today. And if you're going to sit on your back and think you did something for church years ago, I'll tell you what, you're going to hell probably. I mean that. I don't mean you need to do something today to be saved. I mean, you don't get to sit there in pride and say you're good enough get to wake up again and remember how good God is and how good he's going to make you piece by piece, day by day. The night is far spent, verse 12, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And he's going to talk more about that works of darkness in a moment, and I want to spend some time on those words that are buried in the Greek there. Um, But the armor of light It's a beautiful idea. He touches on it here. It's more in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, I believe. And then there's another section, uh, top of the head, Galatians. There's a little bit where he talks about it. But, you know, tying Christian identity to military masculinity is something that we would do well to just do for ourselves. To remember that the kingdom is an army. And always has been an army. And ladies, yeah, you're combatants here. Because we're not fighting with our hands. We're fighting with our tongues. And we're being gathered, we're being assembled to assault the devil's strongholds with nothing but trust that the words we speak are so true, they could kill us all. And we're going to rise from the dead and they're going to kiss our feet. That's who we are. That's what we believe. Yeah. So then let us put on that armor. Understand what it means to be that kind of a man or that kind of a woman. And there is a difference. Hmm. He then goes and says, uh, not in a bunch of things, right? Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, envy. And then at the end of verse 14, another word translated as lusts but it's not the word lust that was translated lust earlier. And I wouldn't even have translated that one lust myself. So we're going to spend some time on these seven words that Paul says, if you want to like do something more than love here, don't do this. Don't do this. And I, I think this little section is, is quite marvelous. Really. Um, uh, let me make sure. Yeah. So the first word I want to tell you about, uh, is the word that is properly in the New King James. Um, that word, uh, manos, means to be in order, really. It's, it's not the most spectacular word in the list, but it just, you know, to line it up, right? So he says, let us walk in, in lines, right? Let us walk in lines. And then that means not a few things here. And the first one, revelry, not in revelry. The word is a, is a very literal, very targeted word. It means to eat too much. That's actually what it means. He says, don't eat too much. We have a word for that from medieval Christianity. The word's gluttony. 
And if that tips my hat, I'll let you guess it. Wouldn't you know these are the seven deadly sins he lists? I'm convinced of it. It's not quite as most people see it, but it's right there. So gluttony is the first one. And what are the seven deadly sins? Are there things you can stop doing? Nope. There are temptations you will face every single day. So the moment you're like, wait, I'm being tempted by gluttony. I am a slave. No, stop it. No, you haven't sinned so bad it's over yet. It's not, it's not done. You can fight. Yeah. Gluttony just means that you give too much trust to food or drink. Right? Or maybe some other type of thing, although we're going to get to that because the next word, which is listed as drunkenness, is, is not really an alcohol word, although it does reference or, or get applied to inebriation. The word methys here um, is better thought of, I think, as, as connected to sloth. What do most people do when they're drinking their third or fourth? Why? And are they active at that point, right? They're probably not on the day job. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. Uh, so sloth here is what this word's really about. And if you can conceive of biblical drunkenness as sloth, it's a desire to make everything else go away. I just want to lie here. I just want to lie here and feel good. Just me, you know. Uh, that's kind of what alcohol pursuit or the worship of alcohol will do. But this isn't about alcohol, right? This is about sloth. It's about not wanting to have to do anything. He says, don't do that. Don't live in sloth. There's a couple more here again. Um, uh, The next one is lewdness. This is the one I'd translate as lust if we're going with seven deadly sins. Lewdness. The word is coitice. And I would translate this like the first one was, you know, don't eat too much. This one is, you ready? Don't bet each other. Don't bet each other is what he says. I I don't think he's speaking against marriage. He's not saying that the procreation of children is wrong, right? But he is saying that living for sex is going to be an incredibly disappointing reality and probably cause a lot of destruction, even in a marriage, especially in a marriage, perhaps. So the word bed, couch, um, it has dirtier references I won't won't mention. Um, But the word really just literally also means to, to lie back or to recline. Uh, It's about where you would do these things. It's kind of a colloquial term. The next one, which here is translated as lust, aselgeia. This is is the kind of most powerful word for me in the list a little bit. It's going to be connected to pride. So if you want your seven deadlies, it's there. But pride is well-defined as self-abandon or disregard for all other boundaries. Any bound that you walk into, you don't even just, you just go right through it. That's pride. That's his word, aselgeia, self-abandoned. I am I, and I am I, and I will, I will, I. Don't be that. Don't be that, he says. Uh, The next one, strife, arid, um, rivalry, discord. This is going to be tied to greed. This is the one that's about wanting more. Try, you know, I see him. He has more. I want it. Coveting is a thing too. We're going to get to that. It's its own version of this, but this word here is about how the conflict arises between other people because I'm trying to get what you got. Power, that kind of thing, right? And then the final word in the first list of six, the seventh is at the end, uh, translated as envy. I would translate the last word as envy. Um, this one I'm going to translate as, as wrath uh, because it is the word zealous. You can hear it. Zeal. Zeal, right? And jealousy. 
right? Um, this word is filled with anger as well, right? Um, it's just like malice, just like rage, right? Uh, so don't be that. And truly, uh, I would suggest that if there's something Americans, all of us, experience that maybe 100 years ago weren't as common, they would happen, but they wouldn't be as common. It's seen fits of rage, out in public even at times, but even amongst ourselves. The, the capacity to, to hold back, I feel I've been wronged, right? The ability to hold that back and, and like love anyway. Uh, that's a place where everybody could grow. Yeah. Um, so that's zeal. Have your zeal not for yourself, but for the other. And then finally, uh, at the end of verse 14, you know, but put on Jesus. Let's not miss that, you know, <laughs> making no provision to fulfill this word epithumize, translated as lusts. And this is a, this is just a goldmine of a word here because it's part of Greek religious, spiritual, philosophical thought that wouldn't matter to any of us now because it's all been left behind in a sense. Um, but, it, but it does when Paul uses it this way. Because we have a word from the Greeks about who we are on the inside. And we use the word soul usually to refer to that. And the Greek word is, is suke or psyche. And you'll even get the modern idea of, of psychology Sukeology, the study of the soul, comes out of that. Now, modern sukeology studies the soul without a belief in God. Probably not going to heal all the problems, but suke, soul, we got that one. This is another one. There's another part of man as essential to man as the soul in the Greek's mind that we don't even think about. It's called the thumos. This word's epithumos. It's, it's the things that come out of the thumos. But the thumos is a a vital force of the human spirit that boils up in violent motions impulsively. And everyone's got it, right? So I got my soul, that's the good part, right? And I got my thumos, and you better watch out. And Paul's like, so kick your own thumos's butt. Right? Kick your own souls, but now Christians, we understand the Greeks are wrong. We're not divided good and evil like that. It's not that easy. I don't have a good soul and a bad soul. I'm me and I'm corrupted, but there's no reason for what boils out of me to come out of me and hurt you, even though I can find where it boils. And now here's where envy is really going to teach you where it boils. I want to know. I'll show you where you're boiling. <laughs> and, and so uh, how do we fight envy? We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We put on the recognition that the day is almost over. The night is at hand. Who cares what you get out of this life? It's almost over. And if it isn't almost over, believing it's almost over and following Jesus will get you way more out of this life. Guaranteed, true fact. To close, I promised we'd go back to the hope of the house of prayer. We're not going to go to the Isaiah text. We're at time. But that text is from Isaiah 56. Jesus says, you know, you've made it a den of robbers, but it's supposed to be a house of prayer. Well, that's what Jesus has established in his Christian church. And though there are buildings that say church on the outside that are dens of thieves, they don't have to be. The main distinction is, is the Bible taught, believed, and spoken by the people? And then, do they baptize? Because Jesus said, do that. Do they take the Lord's Supper? Jesus said, do that. Those are the ways you know if there's a true church, as you look for those kinds of things. Are they faithful? But then again, right, those churches are often embroiled in battles. Battles between, what do we do? How do we pay the bills? Do we need more members? What about this? How come the people left? On and on, right? 
And that is what will make us a den of thieves, that that's what we focus on. But to remember that we're a house of prayer and that Jesus went to that temple and cleaned it out so that they would kill him so that he could clean the tabernacle of our bodies so that we will no longer be thieving with our own souls. Make our bodies houses of prayer filled with the word of God and the Holy Spirit is promised to do this to you. There's no question this will happen to you in your life. This is the way you're going to go. In the name of Jesus, amen.